Our call to worship is Psalm 67, page 535 and 34 in your um, pew Bible. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the people praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For your rule, the, pe the people with equality. And guide the nations of the earth. May the people praise you, God. May all the people praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still, so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm, uh, Proverbs chapter 4. And that will be found in the Pew Bible in front of you at page 586. And follow along. Make sure I don't make mistakes, which I am commonly known to do. And I want to thank the youth for allowing old school to read Old Testament. <laughs> Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me, and he said to me, Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands, and you will live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, for she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, though it cost all you have, Get understanding. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you talk, your steps will not when you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go your way, for they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. 
Today's New Testament reading is found on page 1055 in our Pew Bibles and is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, for food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who, he who unites himself with a prostitute is no one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin but against their own bodies. Do you not know what do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who in you whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were brought a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Amen. Today's gospel reading will be found on your pew Bible on page uh, 964 and 965. Uh, the scripture is Luke 15, verses 11 to 31. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that, the whole country, in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He, fill, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to a census, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of, his, of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, 
All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I can celebrate with my friends. But when, you're, when this son of yours who has squandered all your property with prostitutes has come home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Our starting point is this fabulous parable that has meant so much to so many, that has inspired great works of art like Rembrandt's Prodigal Son. It's a story of welcome. It's a story of redemption. It's a story that touches so many of us because we can identify with one or another of the characters. Some of you are the prodigal. You came to a point in your life, you rejected everything you had been given, everything you had been taught. You took what you could and you left and went into the world and did your best to undo all that had gone before. And one day you woke up and you said it's time to go home. Some of you are the older son. You've never really substantially rebelled, but you're bitter. You haven't yet come to terms with the fact that everything the Father has is yours. You want to complain because he's taken a fatted calf and celebrated the return of one of his precious ones. And you've never had anything to celebrate with. And it's because you've never realized that everything is yours. You're his son. You see, when the father welcomes back the son and puts on him again a ring, he returns to him the credit card. It's an odd sort of trust to place in a boy who's just squandered everything on prostitutes and bad living. He puts on him a robe. He doesn't require that the servants take him to the spring and scrub him down with bleach first. That's what I'd be tempted to do. Shave him head to toe and delouse him and make sure that there's really no parasites he's bringing into the household. It's not what the father does. He falls on him and kisses him and weeps. So the starting place of my sermon this morning must be, I hope, for all of us, the recognition that whatever our journey, we are all God's children. Amen. Some reconciled after dangerous wanderings some yet to be reconciled, and some who have in many ways never left, but never fully realized the ways in which the bounty of the Father come to us and belong to us and his great regard and love for us as we labor side by side. So that's the context of what I want to share today. I hope that in my sharing, if I mention something that is a choice you've already made or made in your past, you don't hear judgment. I hope that if I mention a standard that I would like to see kept and you have a different point of view, you'll keep an open mind because I'm not here to debate. I'm here to engage. I'm here to ask you to reconsider some old things that I've seen slip by the wayside 
They don't constitute a prodigal journey in each case, but they may be symbolic of some of that. What they do speak to is freedom. You see, in our story of the prodigal, neither son was free, were they? Can you hear that? In the story of the prodigal who goes away, he thinks freedom is to be found in eschewing what his father had given him. Well, money aside, he did demand that. And in taking the money, he had no wisdom whatsoever about how to spend it. He thought he had friends, but they were really just interested in the party that he could provide with his money. He thought he had love, but he was just really buying it. He thought he had found freedom, but there was nothing for him there but sorrow and brokenness, uncleanness, and ultimately gnawing on cobs of corn with the pigs he was tending. It was the lowest to which he could degrade himself. It was the farthest he could go. And having bottomed out, he was not free. In fact, he was so encumbered that he thought to go back to the very place that he had found so intolerable a short while before. And in going back, was so sure that the father would begrudge him his spent fortune and his choices, that he went back with the words, I'm not worthy to be your son. I will be your slave. The older boy is not free either. Having never left, having never made that awful choice, having chosen to respect his father, he never understands that all that the father has is his. He never understands the bounty that's there. He never understands the reason to celebrate that which returns or that which stays. He just works. Some of us are like that. Our noses have been to the grindstone so long, we don't know we don't have a nose anymore. Some of us have been so focused on work for so long, we've lost the capacity to experience joy or to celebrate. Some of us don't ever really take a Sabbath. We don't ever deeply rest. Life is too busy. And in the prodigal son's older brother who does not rebel, I resemble that remark. My rebellions have been minor indeed. But I have to say, all have sinned, right? I'm not declaring myself more righteous. I'm simply saying I, I, I was never attracted to some of the things that the prodigal son may have been drawn to. Others, perhaps, but not all. So at the end of the day, you're like me, some of you. you. You didn't wander far from home. You didn't wander far from what you were taught, but you may not have appreciated how much the Father had for you. You never took the power. You never took the gift. You never celebrated. And you were incapable of joining the Father in his joy when your brother returned to the fold. Incapable. Because you felt that to celebrate him was to deny the goodness of the work that you had done. To celebrate him would be to deny all of your steadfastness and all of your righteousness. And it's a lesson in missing the point. 
So this point of grace where the father speaks lovingly to the older son and says, don't you know everything I have is yours? And this point of grace where the father runs out to the prodigal and hugs him and kisses him and places the ring on his finger and, and puts a robe over his nakedness and draws him into the home and kills the fatted calf and calls the servants together and says, celebrate with me, my son is home. All of that is the father's grace. All of that is the Father's love for us, no matter what our journey has been. Doesn't Jesus tell a good story? He does, really does. When we move to Paul's teaching that we just read, he's making an interesting point, quoting some things that were happening in the early church. There were groups of people who believed that the spirit, or the, the, the soul, if you will, the spirit was superior to the body. It was a kind of radical extension of the Platonic ideal. Any material incarnation of anything was inferior automatically to the spiritual reality in the heavenly realms. The ideal, the world of the ideal, as Plato would put it. So the world of the physical, the world of the real, was inferior to the world of the real. And this is very different than creation, very different than Jewish thought. In creation, God says, let there be, and at the end of, re of creation, on each day, he says what? It is good. So in our, our Eastern thought, in, in, in our Jewish thought, the material world is created and it is declared good. But in Platonic thought, it, the material world is an inferior world to the world of the ideal, to the world of the ethereal, to the world of the spiritual. I mean, I'm very practical and I'm, I'm really dumbing down the philosophy, so those of you with more philosophical sophistication, please forgive me. But you get the idea. In the lobby, we have a padded chair of one kind or another, two or three different iterations. And then in the fellowship hall, we have folding chairs and so forth and so on. All of these are called chair. But they don't all share the same looks, the same aesthetic. They don't all share the same uh, materials. They don't all share the same size, shape. Each one of them is somehow different. But we still have this word. And so if we have a word chair that describes different objects as essentially the same, there must be somewhere an ideal chair from which all others are derived. And this ideal chair is in the world of the ideal or the world of the ethereal, the world of the invisible, the world of spirit. So some churches had the idea that bodily life didn't matter because it was inferior. It was an odd sort of disconnect. On the one hand, they discounted body, but because they discounted it, they felt free to do whatever they wanted. They didn't have to worry about what they ate. They didn't have to worry about who they had sex with. They didn't have to worry about any of it because the body didn't matter. Hallelujah. Paul was half Hebrew. Paul understood the Old Testament texture, uh, texts. Paul had read in Genesis where God made the world physical in its instance and said, it is good. So Paul starts quoting in our passage here things that are being said in some of the surrounding churches. 
Let's take a quick look. 1 Corinthians 6. Quote, I have the right to do anything, you say. And Paul points out, but not everything is beneficial. Quote, I have the right to do anything, Paul says. But I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So he makes this analogous extension from diet and stomach and the quote that's being made to the ways in which people are living out their lives morally, sexually. He talks about this in verse 14. Actually, I want to go to 13. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So now Paul is starting to make an argument for the physical body. One of the things that's so powerful about the notion of resurrection is that it takes us from physical body to physical body, body of death to body of life, spiritual body, but in a physical incarnation. This resurrection moment is key. We're formed from dust. We live our lives. Because of sin, we die. And in Christ, our sins are forgiven. We experience his death with him and his resurrection with him, Paul would argue. So we, we live in Christ. We have our being in him. And we look forward to the resurrection as he was resurrected, which is a bodily event. So Paul is arguing that the body is not insignificant here. Not at all insignificant. The body will be resurrected. It's, and he makes the point that goes back also to creation. Bodies are members of Christ himself. Shall we take the members of the body and unite them with a prostitute? Don't you know that, it, that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. He's speaking to this heresy. Flesh is connected to the prostitution, to the unfaithfulness, to the Genesis account where our bodies count, where Adam and Eve will become one flesh. He's taking us to this reference, and then he's arguing, ah, but... Whoever is united with the Lord is united with him in spirit. That's like a slam dunk argument right there. I don't really know how to make it very plain except to say that if we're contrasting the value of body and spirit, and these people are believing they can do whatever they want with body because of the importance of spirit, Paul just slam dunks them by connecting our connectedness to Christ to connectedness to spirit. He just cuts their argument right out from under them. So, let's try to make this a little more plain. In Paul's theology in 1 Corinthians here, the argument that the body will be destroyed, therefore we can do whatever we want with it, the argument that the body is material and therefore inferior to the realm of spirit, all of these arguments are destroyed by Paul, who urges us to a connection with Christ in which there's freedom, and that this does not look like 
either indulgence of appetite or flesh. For we have been united with Christ. He finishes his argument and his thought with this. Flee from sexual immorality. All their sins the people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. It's pretty explicit. Not a comfortable topic, but pretty explicit. We belong to God. We've been bought with a price. Our bodies, bodily existence matters. We've been called not to desecrate that. For the Holy Spirit is to dwell within us. We've been called to a morality. And here's where we get to talk at some point about how we live this out in the world in which we live today and youth culture. My title is Body and Soul because the two are deeply connected. When we hurt our bodies, we often indicate either a state of mind or spirit that's troubled, or we indicate we do something that can cause harm to our own psyches, our own souls. And so we don't talk about things very often in our culture anymore. And I don't want to spend all the time on bodily life, but bodily and soul life have a great deal to do with how certain decisions we make end up being carried out, lived out in our lives. In other words, uh, I can say that better. We are affected in body and soul by the choices we make morally, whether we're speaking of our youth or whether we're speaking of our adulthood. It's very interesting, the world in which we live. We're so saturated and steeped in money and sex that we're not even aware of all of the ways in which those began to affect our thinking and to warp our sensibilities. We live in a culture, and I'm not, I don't want to be too critical of the church. We're certainly not alone in this, and we're following the larger culture. But we live in a culture that doesn't correspond nicely with our faith. Let me give you a quick example. Our faith and our standards morally would be this, that we expect young people to develop in a normal way, but that we expect them to hold their sexual expression for marriage. That is the universal standard of Christendom just about. That is what we have always taught. Anything short of that might get labeled, if we were to find a, a label for it, as fornication. We don't talk about that at all. We do talk about adultery a bit, which would be unfaithfulness to a spouse, or I suppose in some biblical context, spouses, because in the patriarchal age they were polygamists. And when we get to uh, uh, the, the next part of that, and, and I just went blank completely, very helpful, we'll, we'll get back. It's just a, sen a senility moment, and I, I think you can expect more of these as time goes on. We talk a lot, here's where I was going, we talk a lot, on the other hand, about homosexuality in the Christian community. 
oh, we're deeply concerned with this group of people that represents 5% of the population, more or less, if you take an aggregate of male and female homosexuality. We're deeply concerned when we find that we learn a particular church has made a homosexual person a deacon or a leader in the church. We're deeply concerned about homosexuality, but we don't talk about that. We, we talk about that most because it affects us least. And then we talk about adultery one step down more because it affects us, it affects us more than, a lot more than homosexuality, but it's closer to home. We have a 51% divorce rate in Christianity and a 50% divorce rate in the United States as a whole. And part of that is caused by sexual infidelity. The number one reason for divorce, money. Number one reason across the board, money. Disagreements about money. What we never talk about is almost, uh, what do I want to say, it's extremely pervasive in our culture and that's fornication. And I'm not here to hit anybody or beat up on anybody. Our kids are living. I mean, I, my son, when we were going to Hollywood Church, if you looked at the Hollywood Church the right way, right above the church was a billboard of Angeline and her boa. It looked like it was on the roof of our church. Anybody know who Angeline is? She's like 80. Three-liter implants on each side, drives a pink Corvette. She thinks she's a celebrity. She's a wannabe. You know, she had posters all over, billboards all over L.A. Anybody know this? Are you, do you have your heads in the sand? Okay, well, anyway, some of you have seen it. Some of you haven't. It's right above the Hollywood church. Where we I mean, this was the context of, of where we were raising our son. This, this kind of bath of just pervasive images and sexuality everywhere. The pressures on our kids in school are intense to begin a sexual exploration at very early ages, even inside of our subculture in our school. And then when they get older, we ask what is close to, I would say, close to the impossible of them. We say, son, when you're done with high school, done with college, done with medical school, and done with residency, then we'll consider letting you get married. <laughs> and oh, by the way, you better not be dating until then. And if you are, you better not be messing around. Do you see the inconsistency in this? In Bible times, when this language was described, people were marrying at 14, 15, 16, 17. We could expect them to wait that long. But 30? And the reason that we've set our culture up the way it is is because we value education and the ability to get a job and support themselves more than we value whether or not they're sexually pure. So as a culture, as a subculture, we've got some things to address. And adults, I do not want you to talk to young people about this on the way and so, who have you been involved with? Be kind to our kids. They're making very, very tough decisions in a harder world than you and I grew up in. Now, how many of you are parents out there? Raise your hands. How many of you agree that the world in which our kids are being raised is tougher than the world in which we were raised? How many of you believe that the pressures are greater on our kids than they were on us? Okay, if you don't believe that, I think 
we need to talk. And frankly, our kids are having a rough time, and they don't need our judgment. They need our wisdom, and they need our support. And we need to be wise about our expectations culturally. Parents, you might want to, if, if your child comes to you sometime in college and says, I think I want to get married, you might want to consider being supportive. Sure. Instead of saying, no way, you're on your own if you do that. See if you can get them through college, dental school, whatever it's going to be, just as you would as if they had maintained their unmarried state. I'm not passing judgment again, but I can't tell you in my, in my professional career how many couples I marry who are already living together. Certainly not everybody, but large numbers. We've had a cultural shift, and our church hasn't been engaged in resisting it. But you see, the problem even with, the problem with all of this is not just the couple that decides to be involved sexually and later get married. The problem is that we're experiencing people, people are experiencing serial monogamy. Our young people are getting married with baggage. And the rates of pelvic inflammatory disease, HPV, uh, herpes, HIV, the, the rates of infestation are just huge. The consequences emotionally when people go through abortion or give up a child for adoption, they're huge. The consequences that happen emotionally when you go through cycles of connectedness and breaking up and connectedness and breaking up, huge. We, we, have a, we have a challenge we need to collectively begin to think about in moral terms. How can we encourage our young people to make good decisions where their sexuality is concerned? Because young people, you belong to Christ. Amen. Sexual expression is is a wonderful thing, it's a desirable thing, it's a natural thing, it's a hormonal thing, it's, it's you you lots of things going on there. And yet, scripture wisely says, when you connect with somebody this way, you become one flesh with them. And so much better for you if you can make the decision to have that be one than many. And if you've already made that decision, don't throw it out the door and say, well, it's too late. Make the decision to have that be few rather than many. It makes a difference in your soul, in your body, in your life. Another thing that I don't have much of a case to make on, but it's really interesting to me to see the trends in society for cutting, piercing, and tattooing. You know there are people who take guns and shoot themselves to have the right kind of scar out there? I'm kidding, I'm kidding you not. Or they pay people to shoot them, not in a lethal way, but so that they can have that bullet wound scar. It's crazy. I don't want to plant any ideas in your head if you didn't have those already. I mean, the whole... The whole any volunteers? Anybody got a 38 handy? We can, uh, no, seriously, it's a terrible thing going on out, out there. And with the, the piercing culture, and, and I'm speaking so inconsistently. Young people, you're going to pick me apart in 30 seconds on this. You're going to pick me apart because I don't seem to have an issue with you ladies who've decided to pierce your ears for earrings. I, I, I'm inconsistent in that, radically. I, I, haven't, I haven't found that to be deeply disturbing to my soul. But when 
Psychologically, we have young people who are hating themselves and cutting themselves. And when we have a sort of a subculture of, I don't know what to call it, where people are, are piercing everything visible and invisible and tattooing all over their bodies, I wonder what they're going to feel like at 50, 60, 80. Because when you make those decisions, it's kind of tough to undo them. Tattoo's kind of cool. I mean... Anybody think, well, I don't want to take a poll. I, I kind of think some tattoos are kind of interesting, kind of cool. That's how affected by the culture as a whole I've become. And they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And I see more and more Christians giving them, getting them. I went to a, a coffee shop in Ojai when I was on vacation a while ago, and there was this young man. I went into the coffee shop, and there was a young man there, and he, you know, all the tattoos on his neck. And he, but they were Christian tattoos. Alpha and Omega and, and depictions of the cross and the three crucifixes and the spirit and the light radiating from the dove and all these images. And so I, I talked to him. I said, hey, you know, tell me about you. Can I ask you a personal question? I, you know, I don't want to pry, but tell me about your, your tattoo art. And he began to talk about it. And the guy's a Christian. He had texts quoted on his arms and stuff, you know. And I thought, that's really interesting because here's a guy who's going to be in a subculture that I can't relate to. I, honestly, I don't have a mark on my body. But, you know, this guy can talk to people who have marks on their bodies. This guy can be a witness to them. The other problem I have is there's only one text in the whole Bible that talks about this. Cutting, piercing, tattooing. It's found in Leviticus 19. And right next to it, on either side... Before it is the text that says, don't clip the sides of your, your uh, beard or the edges of your beard or the sides of your head. I don't have my, my curly locks and my beard on today. Okay? So when there's a text right before it that says that, then it says the one about the tattooing. Then after that, it says, don't make your daughters prostitute or the whole country turns to prostitute. I want to sing that song that Sesame Street used to sing. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things is not quite the same. Do you know which one I'm talking about? No, I'm talking about turning your daughters into prostitutes. That's, that seems to me to be another category than not clipping the sides of your head or maybe even marking yourself. So, young people, you can pick me apart on this. See, and, and older people, those of you who have made this choice maybe as adults to, to mark or tattoo yourself or something, I'm not standing in judgment of you. I would welcome the pews to be full of, of uh, tatted people. That's fine. God loves you. This is not a salvation issue. This is a freedom issue. Free yourself. Keep your options open. Once you put it on, it's tough to get off. Little ones can cost 3,000 bucks to remove. You're at risk for hepatitis, HIV, and other problems. You're at risk for infections that can compromise your well-being and your health. If you do anything in your mouth, you can break your teeth. I mean, there are all kinds of things going on here that can affect your future well-being. So if it were up to me, I would encourage our young people that if you want to get a tattoo, wait until you're 65 or so. <laughs> Especially you ladies who are considering getting tattoo work up here done. That's going to migrate south. <laughs> and it's going to distort. And you, you may not be as happy with that. I'm sorry, am I telling the truth? You may not be as happy with that in 45 years as you are right now. 
So wait till you're like 65 or 70. Go for it. All right? I think you'll be much happier that way. So anyway, I, I'm being a little silly. And, and young people, I hope you hear me wrestling with the text because I want to be honest with you. Okay, we don't keep the text before that, and we certainly think the text after that one is extreme. So why we would take that and make a big deal of it, I don't know, except to say your health, your well-being, the culture in which you find yourself, the way in which some people read or perceive you might be better served by postponing a decision to tat and pierce to a later time, and then to postpone it again. And let's talk when you're 65 and I'm 90, okay? I probably won't care by then and we'll be good to go, okay? There are other standards. One of the things that, that really affects us body and soul, and I know our time is up, so can you give me a couple more minutes? Do you need to go or can we have a couple more minutes? Okay. We used to have a time when we believed that to enter the military voluntarily was not the way to go. We've always believed in honoring country. But we believed that if the country needed us, it was better to wait until we were conscripted. And then if we were forced to serve, because that's what conscription is, if we had to sign up and serve, we would request what was given by the government as what was known as a conscientious objector status. That is to say we would not bear arms against a fellow human being. Now, part of this is based in a misinterpretation of the commandment. How does the King James read? Thou shalt not what? Kill. Those of you who have some knowledge of Hebrew, how should it read? Thou shalt not commit murder. Okay. So killing and murdering are distinct things. They are separate things, right? So there might be an occasion, and you guys should talk to Alex. He's not around here today, but he's the one who went into World War II, I think it was, as a conscientious objector, was a medic in the medic corps, and never carried a gun, and got through that conflict untouched. He has a remarkable story of how God was with him and how God helped him through this. But when we kill another human being, whether it's killing or murdering, it leaves a stain on our souls. There's a burden that gets carried with that. And our participation in war is predicated on what is known, and people debate the value of this. I don't have anywhere near enough time to go into the full thing, but you can do some research on your own. It's called the just war theory. How many of you have heard of that? So if you have a war that is absolutely clearly going to bring about a greater good despite the ill that's done in the course of warfare in order to bring about greater peace and justice in the world, then it's okay to engage that and killing is a necessary part of that, but you aren't held morally responsible for that in the same way as you would with murder. Does that, does that speak? Do you understand the differentiation I'm making? But because of economics, because of scholarship opportunities, because our schools are expensive, because of lots of other things, so many of our young people are actually signing up with the military, and they're not asking for conscientious objector status. They're taking weapons training, and they're going through, and they're actually doing tours of duty. And I respect their love of country. Please don't think otherwise. I respect the fact that they want to serve. 
I want to be supportive in every way of their experience coming back from that or going to that. I think it's a choice that, in the end, I have no, no option but to honor. It's their choice if this is what they choose to do. But I wish, if you can hear my heart, I wish one of the standards our church could return to, young people, is make the military something you're willing to do for God and country if you're required to do it. And request not to have to be put in a position to take human life. It doesn't matter whose life you're taking. It leaves a stain on your soul and psyche that's so difficult to erase. It's just one of those old-fashioned standards I wish we still adhered to. So, where does that leave us? It leaves us with Proverbs chapter 4. And Proverbs admonishes us to seek wisdom above everything else. It personifies wisdom as feminine and says that if we'll honor her, hold her, cherish her, she'll reward us richly. The passage talks, and I want to find the exact reference for you because it was just really telling to me, of the way in which all of this contributes to our freedom, our health, and our well-being. Two texts stood out to me. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. That's a freedom all of its own. That is a, a way to live life in this passage, and I'm just truncating this, making it very brief, but in this passage, we read that wisdom and true knowledge, truth, are the path that is straight. And this path leads us to life. And the other path leads us to destruction. It's like likened to light and darkness in this passage. What I love at the end is the counsel in 20 to 27. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Don't let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. Ah, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's body. It's connected. That which brings us life spiritually, that which brings energy to our souls and freedom, this brings health to our bodies. Think about all the anxiety that things that we aren't, aren't supposed to do. When we do the things we're not supposed to do, think about how much that anxiety affects our well-being mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. That's so true. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze on the path before you. Give careful thought to where you want to go, the paths for your feet. And don't deviate. Be steadfast. Do not turn to the right or left. Keep your foot from evil. I want you to be free. I want you to be free. 
God wants you to be free. And there's freedom when his wisdom and his truth are embedded in our hearts. Thank you, Peter, for a fantastic children's story. When that's embedded on our hearts, choose freedom. Choose wisdom. Let's not neglect the teachings of Scripture and the counsels that are wise to make us free as we go forward in life. Let's make decisions based on the truth, keeping the straight path. This isn't lack of freedom, young people. It keeps all of your options open. Quick question. When you were born, did you create reality or did it present itself to you as a gift? It presented itself to you as it was, as a gift. Life, reality, was not of your creating. You entered it. We live in an artificial world in which that reality is truncated, in which that reality is perverted. Not always badly. There are good examples of this and bad examples, but we live in a reality of our own creation and in a culture that sometimes fails to affirm the goodness of created life and order as it's been given. And the goodness of the word and wisdom as it's been given. And the goodness of obeying the counsel as it's been given. So that we might truly be free. This isn't to encumber you. It's to grace you. And just to be abundantly clear. Our God is loving and gracious. Our God is the Father who waits to embrace the prodigal and to put his arm around the son who's never left and say, don't you get it? You had the fatted calf. He was yours all along. Take one and celebrate. And let's be God's children together, as free as we can be. Amen. Thank you, Father, for seeking us as we've been lost and loving us and being our God. Help us to find the path of wisdom, for in it lies freedom, and we would be free indeed. Amen.